I invite you to join me if you have your Bible with you. The book of Hebrews, the sixth chapter. Hebrews 6. We shall begin reading at verse 13 and read down through the end of the chapter, that is at verse 20. Hebrews 6, verses 13 through 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steady anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. And now, our Father, we ask that by your Spirit you attend this now, the reading and the preaching of your Word. Forgive us, Father. Help us. Our failures are immense. O oh, great God, make us more than mere hearers, but make us doers as well. Grant to us not only the grace of repentance and faith, but the grace of obedience. For this we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Fellow lost his job. It was a tough economy. Couldn't find a job. Finally, desperation. Applied at the city zoo. And the city zoo was having troubles as well. They hadn't advertised it, but their last remaining gorilla had died, and they had no money for another gorilla. You see where this is going. <laughs> so under guise of some reason for working on the cages and the compounds, they put this fellow in a gorilla suit and put him some distance away and thus he was gainfully employed. And it was all going very well until he got a little rambunctious, 
clambered up a tree and a limb broke, and he found himself thud in the lion compound. A lion took notice and turned towards him, and the man began screaming for help until a voice emanated from the lion, shut up, buddy, or we're both going to lose our jobs. <laughs> you ever pretended to be someone you're not? To be something you're not? You ever been weary and beaten and just not even felt like a Christian? You ever tried to hide your weariness and look more spiritual than maybe you actually feel? When I read this text in Hebrews, I remind myself of something. Right here is probably some of the absolute most encouraging words found anywhere in the scripture what we just read and it comes right after you're a bunch of babies grow up you ought to be ready for solid food you need milk again and oh by the way if you ever fall away from this, there is no hope of recovery. Now, even there, the author tries to hold out some hope. He will not ignore the admonitions. He will not ignore the warnings. My friends, a minister of the Word of God who will not warn you is worthless. He simply has failed in a major element of his task. But even whenever he says they should move on from immaturity and grow as believers, he ends this part with some hope. And, and this will do, if God permits. And even when he talks about apostasy, he ends it with this, saying to them, we feel sure of better things in you. I'll give you another hint. If it's all darkness, destruction, and hopeless, that is an epic failure as well. Now he comes back in a continued exhortation to these believers to continue in the faith, to not give up. Remember, he's writing to Hebrew Christians, Jewish Christians, thus the title of the epistle, Hebrews. He is writing to people who because of persecution, because of suffering, because of being excluded, are considering whether or not it's been worth it to believe in Jesus as Messiah, and maybe they'd be better off to go back to that which is familiar, to go back to the temple, to go back to the sacrifices, to go back to the law, to go back into Judaism. And so at each stage of this epistle, 
in each place he's trying to show Jesus is greater, Jesus is better. There's nothing back there that's better than what is right with you right now. He wants them to realize that they have come as believers to the very much the same kind of faith as no less a figure than Abraham. Abraham looms large in Jewish literature. He looms large in Christian literature. Abraham was a big deal. How he lived, how he carried himself, what he did was powerful as part of the history and heritage of the Jewish people. But he doesn't want these Jewish Christians to think somehow they have missed something that somehow maybe this is less. See, the essence of what he does here is he addresses this common problem, I think, for all believers at all times. Can we trust God? Can we actually trust that God has spoken and that what He has spoken is true and that you can actually rest with all of the weight of your eternal destiny on what He has said. Christian, you ever struggle with being assured? You struggle with confidence of being encouraged? Our confidence in God's promises encourages our faithfulness. But you see, to have that confidence in God's promises requires some things that we need to see and lay hold of. This first, you, Christian, are anchored to God's promise by God's oath. Christian, you are anchored to God's promise by God's oath. As this paragraph begins, when God made a promise to Abraham, okay, now this is familiar territory. It was familiar whether you were a first century Jew, first century Christian, or now a 21st century Christian. Abraham is the example of faith, pointed out repeatedly through the Old and New Testament as, if you will, the embodiment in many ways of faithful living, of living in faith in light of God's promise. The command and the promise actually go all the way back to Genesis 12. Now keep in mind, Abram is a pagan when he is called. Abram's living in Ur of the Chaldees. And the word of the Lord comes to him and tells him to go to what eventually becomes known as the land of Canaan, or what we know as Israel. And so he uproots his family and starts the trek. Now, all we know of that is he's told by God, get out of here, go over there. And so at the ripe old age of 75, the journey begins. 
Brothers and sisters, can I give just a little hint of something that might help you? We look back at Abram and say, oh boy, he, got, he heard from the Lord all the time. Yeah, he heard from the Lord about four times in 25 years. Give or take. You hold in your hand <laughs> the entirety of God's written word, including everything he said to Abram. And you don't take advantage of it. Believers, we embrace God's promise. But he's not just talking about the promise. And I love the logic of the author. Faith embraces God's promise. Faith is encouraged by God's oath. Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. Now in ancient Israel, oaths were much different from oaths taken today. Some of the distinctions. Oaths in the Old Covenant were not merely contractual. They were not sealed with a signature. They were sealed by the participant's personal word, that is their own integrity, and if to be sealed with greater authority, they were sealed using, in Israel, the very name of God. Now, how serious was that? Serious enough, it makes it into the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So to take a vow and name Yahweh as your witness was a matter of life or death. To fail the vow, having used the name of God, bore temporal and in some instances eternal significance. I know, say, oh, oh, you're going to go off on a little diatribe here about swearing. Well, not exactly a diatribe. Less than that. But my brothers and sisters, hear me when I say this. One of the methods of the enemy is to take that which is holy and glorious and wonderful and special and seek to make it common and coarse and denigrate it. True in the old, true in the new. How often do we hear the name of not just God generically abused, but with great specificity, the name of our one and only Savior 
Jesus Christ's name uses a common swear word. I will merely point out to you, my friend, that if to take the name of God in the Old Testament in vain was dangerous, multiplied times over would it be to take the name of the only Savior of mankind and treat His name with contempt. Mm. Some of us, even as believers, need to be a whole lot more careful about what escapes our lips. Oh God, oh Lord, oh Jesus, I hear those things. We must not take that which is holy and treat with such contempt. That is to fall prey to the temptation and work of the enemy. You say, well, okay, what's that got to do with God taking an oath? Well, the whole idea behind swearing or taking an oath is to appeal to someone higher than you and their authority to lend weight and gravitas to your word which lacks weight and gravitas. So, by whom does God swear when He makes a promise? What does the author tell us? Since He had no one greater by whom to swear, He swore by Himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. God swears by himself. This is the essence in Genesis 22, anchored in the prior promise of Genesis 15. The angel of the Lord, this is part of our response of reading this morning, called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by, my my, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you've done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I'll surely bless you. And you read the rest of that text. I have sworn by myself. Men's oaths bolster their word. God's oath, if you will, bolsters our faith in His promise. God not just promises, God swears to keep the promise. Now, folks, let me let you know a little secret. God didn't know you that. He didn't know Abraham that. God's promise is enough. But to deal with us in our frailty and our weakness, first beginning with Abraham, he says it and then he swears since there's nothing greater than him, no one greater than him, he swears by his very own existence, his very own nature and name that he will keep the promise. Thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. But people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Now let me stop there for just a moment. Who does he, to whom does he make the promise? Well, it's Abraham, right? That word's to Abraham. But the author here 
takes the promise to Abraham and extends it to every heir of Abraham. Who are the heirs of Abraham, you say? Well, I'm not saying in simplicity as well as those people over in Israel. Not according to the New Testament. That is an insufficient definition. Everyone who believes in Jesus Christ is an heir of Abraham. Look around, my friends. You are the fulfillment of the promise in you and your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. This is the blessing. We are his heirs. And he makes this promise to us. Now, folks, faith does encounter opposition. That should not be a surprise to us. Now, I said earlier, and I misspoke, Abraham hears from the Lord five times in 25 years. So about once every five years, if you have, that's not how it works, but you get the idea. At age 75, the promise comes the first time. Here's it again after Lot chooses the best land. Here's it with an oath after delivering Lot. Here's it again one year before the fulfillment. Here's it again after the presentation of Isaac for sacrifice. Now, let me encourage you, Christian. Some of you struggle with confidence in this gospel. And you struggle with confidence of the work of the Lord in you. Now, please grasp what I'm saying here. I'm not picking at you. All right? I love, Lake Duncan put it this way. You know, there are some people who are temperamentally inclined to and vulnerable to struggles with assurance. I have certainly witnessed that. Some of the godliest people that I've ever known, people that know their Bibles, who can explain the gospel as well as any evangelist, who trusts in Jesus Christ, whose lives bear all sorts of evidences of God's grace, I've met them, I've met them by the dozens, can struggle with assurance. And oftentimes, I'm sitting there having a conversation with them, and I'm thinking, this is the bubble above my head. She's a better Christian than I am, and she's struggling with her assurance. There are some people that are temperamentally inclined to struggle with assurance, and God knows that. And so he spends a lot of time in the Word giving us assurance of his love so that we're grounded in a firm and certain hope. He doesn't want us to wander in this world wondering whether he loves me. We've, we've laughed about this before. You know, people say, oh, you Calvinists and your tulip, the five points of Calvinism. Well, Arminians have a flower too. It's a daisy. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. You understand the Lord doesn't want you to go through your life, Christian, if you're actually his, wondering if he loves you. He has promised. He has sworn. And faith then expects fulfillment. So when God, verse 7, desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things. What are the two unchangeable things? God's promise, God is oath. God makes a promise and he swears to keep it. Two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, 
God can't lie in promising. God can't lie in swearing to keep the promise. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement and hold fast to the hope that's set before us. Wow! That's almost enough to make a Baptist dance. He wants you to have strong encouragement. Not weak, not sort of, strong encouragement. But Christian, hear me. Do you see where you must look for the strong encouragement? You don't look in you, you look away to Him. It's not how well you've kept your promise, it's His promise. It's not your oath that you're not going to do that sin anymore and you're not going to fail that way anymore. And many of you have made oaths like that thinking somehow you swearing would fix it and it never fixed it. And then you're in double trouble because you not only promised you wouldn't do it, you swore you wouldn't do it and then you did it. Some of you half praying for purgatory. Some way to pay for your failure. Christian, here is the strong encouragement. Here is the great hope set before you. God has promised. God has sworn. Thomas Brooks, the Puritan, in his volume on assurance of salvation, and by the way, if you don't ever read any other Puritan, this is worth your time. I think it's in the Puritan paperback series. It's called Heaven on Earth, Thomas Brooks. It's about assurance. God gives us his word, his oath, his seal, that our consolation may be strong and that our salvation may be sure. Oh, my dear family. Some of you live in misery and you don't have to. You're always measuring. You're always weighing. You're always trying to figure out. Have I done enough? What's enough? And you, you, you die because you do comparative Christianity. And you look around you. And you find this person you think is the absolute definition of Christian living and you're not living up to them and so you think you're just an abject failure and you battle that your whole life and it's wrong on so many levels. Number one, you never look at somebody else as the measure. You look to Jesus and you, well, that's worse because he's perfect, yes, but you look to him not only as perfection but as the one who loved you and gave himself for you. You spend so much time looking inward, you never do anything useful in the kingdom. You're always taking your spiritual temperature. You're always checking yourself for what the Puritans, I've said this before, call the mumps and measles of the soul. This is not how you live. Strong encouragement. Hold fast hope. And notice how he says it. That set before us. Not here. Set before us. 
Grab that. Lay hold of it. Steadfast. So you're anchored to God's promise by God's oath. But here's the second thing. You're also anchored to God's throne by God's Son. These final two verses. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The anchor, like the ichthus, the fish symbol, the fish was a symbol of early Christianity. The Greek word for fish, ichthus, was used as an acrostic Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. The individual letters could stand for those terms. And so the symbol of the fish was used to mark believers. But there are 66 images of anchors in the catacombs beneath Rome. Anchored. And you notice only by resistance you feel the anchor. And you're anchored. Now, I don't know a lot about boats. I've, I've had some experience with boats. But I know this. If you've got a boat, in most every instance, you likely need an anchor of some sort. And, and the anchor, taking advantage of those glorious realities of mass and weight and gravity and friction, Keep you from going places you don't want to go. But do you see the imagery here? Christian, your anchor doesn't go down, it goes up. You mean it, it floats? No, no, you're missing. <laughs> The anchor is what Jesus does by his very presence at the right hand of the throne of God. You and I are secured, anchored in this wild, woolly, difficult, wind-blowing, storms coming, heat-beating down, misery that can be this life and our anchor holds, what's the line from the hymn, within the veil. Now, yeah, you ever look at the tabernacle or the temple, I'm here to tell you, there was not a piece of furniture that was an anchor. Don't find one. You got an altar. You got a big basin, the laver for washing the sacrifices. You got a table for bread. You got a lamp for light. You got a censer for incense and symbolizing the prayers of the people. And then in that most holy place, you have the Ark of the Covenant of God, 
where the high priest could only go once a year, and you and I have a great high priest who not only enters that most holy place, he splits the veil, and he goes in, and his presence with the Father is the anchor for your faith and confidence. You are held. Do you see how much better, how far better this hope is than what the Israelites had? A high priest who enters once a year and they had to tie a rope around his leg in case he sinned in there and died so they could drag him out. Versus the great high priest who anchors us to the throne of God forever. He goes in before us, we follow after. He does it for us so we don't have to do so. He is our great high priest. Or to quote Tom Schreiner here, our hope is secure for Jesus as, I love this, the Melchizedekian priest. I don't think I've ever gotten to use that word before. You think it's enough to say Melchizedek. He actually turned it into another term. The Melchizedekian priest has atoned for their sins so they can enter God's presence joyfully and boldly. Have you? Well, we've come a long ways here, haven't we? Start way back yonder in Ur of the Chaldees with a pagan Abram and his family. They get as far as Haran, they get held up, daddy dies, Abram goes on, they finally get to the land. We see promises made, promises kept. We see Abraham on Mount Moriah having waited and waited and waited for that boy. Lays him out on an altar, binds him hand and foot, wood under him, takes the knife to cut his throat bleed him dry and burn him to an ash heap. How could he do that? Because the writer will later tell us he so trusted the promise of God, he believed God had to raise him from the dead. It didn't matter if he killed him. It didn't matter if he burned him to an ash heap. God said, through Isaac, your seed will be called. He believed God would raise him from the dead. And the promise that he makes to Abraham. He seals it, if you will, with an oath. He further embraces and buttresses it by providing a lamb, a ram, if you will, on that mountain. And the language there should make you think of the New Testament. Abraham, you did not withhold your son, your only son. And now that gets turned around for us in the New Testament. It is God the Father who does not hold back His Son, His only Son. And His only Son, by His living, His dying, His resurrection, His ascension, now does for His people what can only be done by Him. He sits at the right hand of the throne of God. He anchors us to the throne of God. And we have access with boldness and faith to the very throne of God for what he promised to Abraham he more fully fulfilled in what he did in Jesus Christ. And that, my friend, is a place to rest 
Here is confidence that should encourage you to go as hard and as fast and as quickly as you can to Him. I can feel the anchor fast as I meet each sudden blast, and the cable, though unseen, bears the heavenly strain between. Through the storm I safe ride till the turning of the tide. And it holds. My anchor holds. Blow your wildest then, O gale, on my bark so small and frail, by his grace I shall not fail. For my anchor holds. My anchor holds. Oh, Christian, why should you be discouraged? Why should you be battling so hard for encouragement? Tell yourself the truth. Believe what he says. You carry not only far more of the word than Abraham ever had, you know the one promise that he looked to that day, as the Savior will say, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Christian, you and I see that day in a way Abraham never did. We are secure. Now, friends, you're not in, in Christ. I, I hold before you now the only hope you have. This Savior. Run to Him. Fast as you can. Turn from your sin. Trust Him. Run to Him. Well, where is He? He's right here. Right now. If you cry out to Him in prayer, He will hear you. Here is our confident faith. Here is our glorious encouragement. The anchor holds. Let's pray. Our Father, for this glorious text and these wondrous promises, we give you thanks. You not only made a promise and an oath to Abraham, you made a promise and an oath to your son and through him to us. Oh, glorious God. Forgive us our short-sightedness. Forgive us our self-centeredness. Forgive us for looking in all the wrong places for assurance. Grant to us that we would look to what Christ has done and to him alone. For some who do not know you, I pray this is the day of their salvation. For those of us who do, grant us not merely faith, but obedient faith. 
that we would with great confidence believe what you've said and be encouraged. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing this hymn in response to God's word. the sure and steady.